Welcome to another episode of The Macro Trading Floor. This is Alf speaking, CEO and founder of The Macro Compass, and with me, as always, Mr. Steno, Andreas Steno Larsen, uh, the founder of Steno Research. Um, I didn't use the term CEO this week, Elf. We use it too much, I guess. <laughs> fair point, fair point. So, Elf, uh, I, I mean, it, if we look at market moves this week, it's actually been... I'd say relatively quiet if you look at it from a week-to-week basis. Um, Not too many major moves. But looking at your dashboard of volatility-adjusted drivers of the market, what's sort of on your radar this week? China. China, yeah. Let's start from there, shall we? So, recap. Gen 1st to Gen 17. Buy China, buy China, buy China, buy Remimbi, buy everything, buy Chinese stocks. It was the only game in town. And then basically it kind of didn't do anything for a week. And then it started drawing down pretty aggressively. And now we have the Chinese renminbi trading basically at seven against the dollar, which is quite a psychological level. Um, I mean, this means a weaker Chinese renminbi. And most importantly, the market is just like, dude, I don't see this great reopening in any data. And unless I see it, I'm just not going to believe it. Uh, so also all the other proxies of Chinese growth, uh, the Aussie dollar, uh, the Korean won, uh, also in, in sectors of the equity market, it's just not showing up. So what do you make of this China story? Are these guys really reopening? Are they boosting growth? So it's just a matter of time till we see it in the data or what's the deal here? You can look at this in two ways. You can look at it from a hot data perspective. Fair enough. We don't see that reopening anywhere. Um, we don't even see it in proxies. So, I mean, for example, the German PMI, what you would have expected would be a boost to new orders in manufacturing if China actually reopened at a, at a rapid pace. Nowhere to be seen. But if you look at forward-looking gauges of hard data in China, I think it's crystal clear that they're trying to at least orchestrate a rebound. Uh, record amount of credit created in the Chinese economy in January record amount of liquidity added to the money market by the PPOC on a weekly basis. Uh, That's typically a sign that lending is actually uh, quite rapid because otherwise they wouldn't need to add liquidity, I'd say. Um, So liquidity dries up because of lending. And those are some of the typical measures you would watch for activity gains in China in, say, three, four months from now. Uh, So... I think there is a reason to expect this Chinese rebound to actually occur, but admittedly, we don't see it in either hot data or hot data proxies in the West. And I I guess that is why uh, we suddenly take a breather in this case. Um, But all of the forward-looking gauges from from money creation to credit creation, um, essentially the same thing ultimately. Well, you should expect China to rebound. Uh, And from an incentive scheme, perspective you probably should expect them to underpin right about everything as well yeah look um the incentive schemes are important andreas and um i do agree that china has all the incentive schemes to try and boost their economy a bit after having locked down for basically two years Uh, they don't have an inflation problem uh they they are not you know in the position where if you boost nominal growth further, then inflation gets out of hand, which would be a pretty big social problem in China, given also what the politics are there. They don't have that problem. 
Not at all, at least right now. So boosting real growth and getting some confidence back in the economy, I think, will be um, the best thing to do from an incentive scheme perspective. Those incentive schemes are transpiring in other places. So if you look at the property sector, um, Chinese high-yield property credit spreads have tightened 500 basis points, 500 basis points <laughs> since the beginning of the year. So basically the, the default or the cascading deleveraging risks in the Chinese property sectors have been priced away because Chinese policymakers are trying to backstop now that sector. So you see that there, there, there is willingness, I think. It's just not transpiring yet in data. Um, so probably just a matter of patience. And if that is the case, actually there is quite a lot of proxies that have been beaten up badly uh, over the last few weeks. And um, the problem for the West is that if China reopens and it, and it goes into the data, it boosts nominal growth, even so temporarily so, for countries that have an exposure, an economic beta to China. And so if you look in the West, you're looking at, no, sorry, not in the West. If you look at developed markets, you're looking at Japan, Australia, Korea. Those are the, you know, the biggest developed markets with the biggest economic ties to China, but also to a certain extent, um, Europe especially. So you end up maybe compounding these fears of strong nominal growth, which domestic central banks don't want, the ECB, the Fed, um, Bank of Australia, et cetera, et cetera. None of these has to be, uh, has been felt yet in, uh, in markets. I'd like to touch briefly upon Japan being one of the big trade partners of China, um, because even though this hearing from the new governor and the new deputy governor was probably the most boring television I've ever watched. One thing is to try and follow a hearing in a language you don't get and then have a live transcript on the side. Uh, that's difficult enough, but um, I guess it's just part of Japanese culture to say nothing at all in, in uh, hearings like that. Um, where did the new governor essentially kept referring to um, the yield curve control as something that he could not discuss as the, at this juncture because he knew that he would move markets. He said that is explicitly. So, I mean, a complete nothing burger. But what what is an interesting um, out of Japan this week is the deal that's um, um, being manufactured between Toyota and yeah. uh, its employees. 5% uh, nominal wage growth on top of an extraordinary seasonally adjusted bonus, meaning that this will likely take uh, wage growth to the uh, 6 to 6.5% handle from the biggest employer in Japan. Um, I mean, currently we have service inflation running at slightly more than 1.5% um, in, in Japan. That is obviously not sustainable if Toyota pays 6.5% more to its employees. Uh, so this is, to me, an, a confirmation that we will see service inflation spilling over to Japan now, uh, exactly as we've seen in parts of um, the West with the time lag to the U.S., and now Japan is the next target of, of this trend. Uh, this is potential big news for, for global fixed income markets because we've seen this trend month in and month out of selling of U.S. treasuries, of French govies, of uh, callables in the Nordics, etc., all, all that uh, um, from from Japanese lifers, uh, and without a doubt, Japan is the biggest lender per capita worldwide. Um, so, this is probably one of the reasons why fixed income markets struggle, on top of the repricing made by central banks in the West. Yes, at the end of the day, 
um, I think the new governor is probably a very practical person. And so far, core, core, whatever that means, inflation in Japan is roughly 3%, pretty high, historically speaking. Services side of the inflation is below 2%, but we have seen it already in the West. This movie has been repeated plenty of times. From goods inflation, it moves to services inflation. The longer it stays there, these inflationary pressures, the more likely are... Um, people, employees to demand for wage increases, especially in a still relatively tight labor market, and then it moves into services inflation, and it becomes more persistent, right? I don't see any particular reason why in Japan this would be different, Andreas. It's just a matter of lags. It's a much more rigid labor market. It's a more rigid economy in general, so it just takes a little bit longer, but we have seen that movie already. So if that happens also in Japan, then the options on the table are very clear. Um, you need to tighten policy. How do you do that? Well, whatever formula you choose, either you raise rates at the front end or you raise rates at the back end or whatever you decide to do with yield curve control, you will reward Japanese investors with higher risk-free rates domestically. And the economy is global economy and global credit markets are, you know, let's say in a downturn. You want to debate whether we're going to go in a recession, whether we're going to go in a period of slow growth. Definitely, we are not going to have booming global growth for the next six to 12 months, right? I, I think that's a given. Plus, you're rewarding Japanese investors with higher risk-free rates in Japanese yen. Domestic currency, no risks to be taken. It's pretty obvious there's going to be some repatriation of capital, which is not particularly great, I think, for, um, for foreign equities and foreign fixed income. Um, also, interestingly, for the yen, which has been depreciating against the dollar, over the last two to three weeks. I think it's more of a story of um, timing. I mean, being long the yen and short the US dollar, it's a damn negative carry trade. You have to pay the interest on the dollar and get the interest on, Jap on Japanese yen, which is nothing at the time being. So the longer you wait and the, the longer nothing happens, the more money you lose, right? So you need action. You need something to happen. I think we're going to get that action in, uh, in March. Uh, if not in March, then in April, but medium term, if you're a medium term investor, you should bear in mind that what happens in Japan matters for the world. Um, but it's it's very typical, isn't it, Elf, that um, a case like the Japanese one is impossible to bet on without uh, a negative carry position. Yeah. You, you, you could... You could do whatever proxy trade of this um, you could imagine. Uh, you could be short French bonds versus being long German bonds. Mm -hmm. That is also proxy trade of this, but again, negative carry. Uh, you could be yeah, short the Japanese yen. You could be short the 10-year GHB, also negative carry. Everything just carries negatively. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, as, as soon as Corona basically told markets, the coming month, nothing will happen. Yeah. Then, of course, this was the needed reaction because it's just expensive to wait that month. Yeah, you're just going to bleed money while you wait for nothing to happen. That's not a great setup, right? So, as as per usual with negative carry trades, you need to time them well. And I've ill timed my entry illy. Um, but I, from a fundamental perspective, something has to happen. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. Let's move a bit to the more mainstream global macro places, namely Europe and the US, shall we? Because a lot of data has come over the last week. And um, this discussion on hard landing, no landing, soft landing, it's pretty fun. So why don't we have a little bit of that uh, later on? But first, as we are talking about data, uh, let's talk about Europe for a second. So this morning, we're recording on Friday, 24th of February, we got the breakdown 
of the Q4 GDP numbers in Germany. And the breakdowns basically allow you to break between inventories, net trades, and domestic demand, or a proxy for domestic demand. And the quarter-on-quarter drop in domestic demand in Q4 in Germany, if you exclude the lockdowns, was the weakest since the great financial crisis. And at the same time, you're getting inventories accumulation at the moment where domestic demand took a hit. Now, obviously, Andreas, we're looking at Q4 data, so that includes the energy crunch. Uh, but Q4, I mean, Q4, yes, it was the energy crunch, but it was also the large subsidies from Germany. I mean, Germany allocated a gargantuan amount of public money to try and backstop the private sector from the energy crunch. And nevertheless, you still get real retail sales, which are trending negative, very much so. And you get this domestic demand on both uh, drawdown, on both measures, real final sales from the GDP breakdown and real retail sales in Germany. You're looking at the most rapid drawdown since the great financial crisis. So what do we make of this growth story? Because the market is instead on another island. And it's true Q4 is a backward-looking number, but the market is pricing European stocks as if not only a recession is avoided, but most likely actually growth isn't that bad at all for 2023. So where do we stand? To take a very practical uh, measure on what's being priced in by equity markets in Europe, I tend to look at cyclical equities relative to defensive equities and compare those to where they typically trade relative to the manufacturing PMI. So the cyclical component of the economy. And this ratio between cyclicals and defensives currently point to manufacturing PMIs above 60 uh, from a historical perspective. It's it's like completely out of sync. Yeah. Um, And interestingly, this week's PMIs showed a rebound in services, but not in manufacturing, which is an odd cocktail since uh, from a beta perspective, you would actually rather like the opposite. Uh, even though the service sector is is a bigger part of the economy, the manufacturing sector tends to drive the cyclicality of markets. Uh, so this, this isn't net-net a good thing for markets that you saw another drawdown in manufacturing, clearly the most interest rate sensitive uh, component in the economy while services rebounded. And speaking of services, and now I am um, almost stuck on repeat from last week, I've had another look at seasonal adjustments uh, in retail sales and um, in the service sector overall in PMIs. And it still strikes me that the adjustment to December was too negative and the adjustment to the beginning of the year is too positive relative to what you... um, would expect. Uh, and now I've even tried to, to sort of replay the seasonal adjustment method um, in my own statistical program. And I think what's at play here is that the outlier filter in the seasonal adjustment method. Uh, so what you do is that you take a centered moving average um, to sort of clear the trend from the time series, and then you remove outliers from that yeah. to ensure that uh, they are not used as part of the uh, calculation for seasonal adjustments. And when you remove outliers, you remove a lot of the um, observations made during winter time in 21, 22, because of lockdowns and, uh, and all that. And it suddenly makes December and January 22, 23 look extremely volatile compared to the rest of the time series, which is not necessarily fair. Uh, so I tried to 
for example, removed the outlier filter from U.S. retail sales in January and actually got something more stable. <laughs> and the, the opposite should typically be true, that if you remove yeah. the outlier filter, you get something more noisy. Um, so something is going on with that outlier filter. And if you remove the outlier filter, um, it essentially holds true that 50% of the rebound scene in the service sector, in the demand side, uh, like the consumer rebound scene in, in 23, is fake news or it's created in a spreadsheet. Yeah. Uh, so the rebound is not as strong as people think. So we have a spreadsheet rebound and we have probably a Chinese rebound, a real one that isn't yet showing up in the data. So that's quite funny, I have to say. <laughs> There's a lot of noise uh, going around in macro data. So um, let's talk about these macro data releases in the US and then let's move to the discussion on markets for a second. So we have had uh, the PMIs, which you basically covered. I mean, we've got one of these rebounds again, where in, in December, these PMIs looked like really recessionary. And then in January, they look like the economy is flying. So again, a lot of noise. And the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Um, again, really, if you look even at hard stuff, real final sales in the US GDP are trending at 0.7% annualized growth. So is 0.7% the recession? No. Is 0.7% booming growth? No. What is the trend? It's down since last year. Does it mean we're going to get a recession soon? No. If it stabilizes here, that's the definition of a soft landing. You, you grow at 1% annualized, you avoid the recession, but you don't boom. Right, so, but the trend is very clear, I think. If you cut through the noise and smooth a little bit, the seasonal adjustments, etc., that's what we get. Uh, what I found interesting, and I want your take on that, is the housing market. Because every rebound in macro and markets, durable rebounds, let's say, has been always led by a bottom in the housing market. And mortgage applications came in instead at um, the lows, again, like multi-decade lows. So we've got some, some initial green shoots in the housing market, apparently, in December, January, but people are not applying for mortgages, Andreas, and 84% of purchases in the U.S. housing market are backed by a mortgage. No mortgage applications, no new buyers. It's pretty simple. So what do you make of the housing market? I think maybe even just a month ago, people started debating whether this was a soft landing for the housing market as well, or the early hints of light at the end of the tunnel and all that. And then just a tiny um, sort of removal of that positive impulse from, from lower mortgage rates, and you get extremely um, an extreme effect on, uh, on mortgage applications again. So it is relatively clear to me that this housing downturn is not over. We need very little negative news to spur a lack of action again while um so i mean what i'm saying here is that the outcome space looks skewed to the out to the downside since we need so little news on the negative side to again move the needle in a downwards direction relative to to the upwards direction uh mortgage rates at seven percent typically means a national decline of 15 to 20 percent on an annual basis ouch and if if we add 15 to 20% annually on top of what happened regionally in 22, then it's, it's starting to hurt, right? The funniest thing that I hear is, Alf, that's good. If house prices go down 30% from their peak, 
Actually, in some areas, and there's like San Francisco Bay Area, they are already down 25, 30% from their peak. So mm -hmm. the most frothy areas of the housing market have already seen super rapid declines. I think Bloomberg sent out a piece where they estimated about, what was that, 3 trillion of uh, US uh, house prices worth uh, was already wiped out in uh, 2022. I think there is more to come, but actually look at it from a two, co two considerations. Look at it from a long-term perspective. If house prices decline another 15%, you are just back at pre-pandemic levels. Mm. You have effectively cleaned up the excesses created during the pandemic, and that's it. So everything else that was accumulated in 10 years of a, of a bull market in housing remains there. It just remains yes. there. So you've just cleaned up the excesses. It's not a disaster. Um, it's a healthy correction of excesses, I would say. But the second thing that is funny that I hear is, that's good, because then finally I can go and buy a house. Well, 30% decline, median decline in house prices has always led to quite a weak economy and labor market. It starts generally from the construction sector. If there is no activity in the housing market, then why would you need to hire new construction employees? Then it moves to ancillary activities in the housing market, and also that labor market there weakens and then slowly but surely it moves to services. So you're going to have mortgage rates still pretty high and you're going to have a much weaker labor market, which means hardly you can go around and have the confidence to you know, afford um, such an important purchase like, like a house back then. The best moments to buy a house historically have been where the pain through the economy was already felt, so it was long um, uh, you know, long past the, 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 past the peak negativity and mortgage rates were already declining, which means the central bank was already accommodating for a long period of time and credit conditions had become looser. We are nowhere near that point. I, uh, I agree. But interestingly, Alf, we, um, we're yet to see any signs of weakness in housing prices show up in consumer price indices. Uh, and it is, uh, for some reason, we, we always remain stuck on repeating this discussion at the very end of the cycle, that while uh, inflation is still running too hot because of housing and labor market intensive um, categories, but if housing breaks, then it basically solves the bo both of these inflation pressures um, because it both solves the housing costs over time and the inflation index with a time lag, but it also spills over to the wage formation. Correct. Uh, so. I, I would even call it a necessity for the Fed to, to create an even bigger drawdown in the housing market. This reminds me of um, before every recession, there was always a chat about soft lending. It's the same story. Like at the very end of the cycle, there is always a chat about inflation is high because the housing market is still strong and the labor force and, and sorry, the labor market is still strong as well. It's typical late cycle behavior as also to assume that um, sharp tightening of financial conditions we have seen last year will not result in a material growth uh, slowdown. I mean, that's never been the case in the past that if you tighten conditions that aggressively, you don't get quite a sharp economic slowdown. But every time we have the discussion where this time is going to be different, something structural has changed in the economy, the economy can handle 5% risk-free rates all of a sudden. I find this discussion fascinating. Like, I can appreciate that there are maybe some structural changes in the inflation picture. 
you're trying to onshore a bit more labor, supply chains haven't worked very well, so if you're a CEO, maybe you're considering that. The energy picture and the geopolitical picture have changed a little bit, but we have seen the natural gas story. I mean, everybody was freaking out that Europe would run out of gas, and now you have natural gas at the weakest spot price level that we have seen in whatever, a long period of time, right? So are we sure the economy has changed in a structural way so that all of a sudden the US has almost 300% total economy debt to GDP, private plus pub public sector debt, and we can afford 5% risk-free rate, which means 7% mortgage rates and 7% corporate borrowing rates? I don't know. I don't think so. Of course we can if inflation runs at 10% persistent. <laughs> yeah, okay. But I mean, then, then we can. But yeah. if, if we take forward pricing of inflation um, just to be true in ballpark terms, then we cannot. That would be my take. Because then inflation will clearly drop below that nominal rate again, and that would be tricky to, uh, to grasp for the economy. But now even long-dated real yields are plus 100 basis points. You know, it's not a ridiculously high level, but it's quite a level. I mean, real yields in the U.S., long data, have been between zero and negative 100, 200 basis points in the U.S. for the last 10 years on average. Plus 100 is quite an outlier. So the thing is, of course, it can temporarily be there. If the Fed tightens policy and it keeps it tight, then it forces markets to price that in temporarily. But moving to the higher for longer story, higher for longer means that really the economy can work almost at potential with risk-free rates at 5%, which means forget about cuts, not only in 23, forget about cuts in 24, forget about cuts in 25. Higher for longer means 4 to 5% Fed funds persistently. Something has changed. That's what it really means. The market isn't pricing that as a high probability scenario, um, but there are chapters around it. So what's your take? I mean, shall we price it? You think as market participants, as a higher probability scenario that the U.S. economy can handle for a long period of time, 4 to 5% interest rates? But I, I mean, e even in some of the GDP models that I uh, run with data back to the 70s, um, so we can actually track the performance of these models during a time of inflation, the forward-looking component to this models, these models still hint of a recession in the second half of the year. Um, I mean, we've we've kept postponing the timing of this inflation. Uh, sorry, this recession. We have to admit that uh, most pundits expected it to occur during the first half of this year. Now, most pundits expect it to happen during the second half of the year. And maybe we need that trigger to sort of finally pull the rock from under the final piece of momentum. But it would be the first time in history with the set of leading indicators that we have from the US that would not end up in a recession. I mean, I, mean, I, could, I could not rule it out. I cannot rule it out, but it would be the first time in history. So from a statistical perspective, it's very unlikely. The breadth of leading indicators pointing that direction is high. It's very high. Was it only one or two indicators? You can discuss whether you know there is something to dismiss there, but the breadth is very, very large. I uh, wrote a piece as well on, for the Macro Compass subscribers on that, trying to grasp really 10 indicators that statistically have proven to be pretty reliable over time and having an objective look at those and say, look, I mean, how many of those are already in recessionary territory? The answer is you get 70 to 80% 
pointing to a recession starting May, June 23. And I look at them and I ask myself like, okay, you smooth out three month trending series. You have been a little bit of a rebound, tiny bit if you're just for seasonality, et cetera, over the last two, three months as the picture changed, not really. Um, so I, I have to think that we are still going there. Bridgewater released a very interesting note, I think today or yesterday, where basically what they argue, Andreas, is uh, we have done the first part of the cycle where there has been a lot of fiscal uh, being thrown at the economy. The economy has, has grown nominally in an incredible way. Inflation has picked up and remained persistent. Central banks have hiked. Okay, we are there. From this moment onward, there are really two viable options. Either the Fed has to choke the economy for longer because it's so persistent that it takes longer than people expect for nominal spending to draw down, wage growth to draw down to a level consistent with 2% inflation. Or you actually end up in a recession now or soon, which will make it faster. But however I slice and dice this, I ask myself, if the two outcomes are both non-linear, so you need a very tight Fed until something actually happens, or you need something to happen anyway earlier, a recession, I can't really see this as a fantastic environment to be long risk assets. As a medium-term investor, you are basically waiting for an accident, effectively. So the, the two tails, the higher for longer tail, is one where the Fed chokes the economy for longer. And that almost calls for an accident. And the other tale is that recessionary forces prevail quickly, and that's another tale. So I think those two tales, both of them, are relatively fat and doesn't make a great case to be, to be long risk assets as a medium-term investor, I think, especially if risk-free rates are 5%. Well, you can look at it from a very practical perspective. Earnings yields print at 5.5 or thereabout on average. Um, so at least from an earnings perspective, you get roughly the same. <laughs> <laughs> great deal. Parking it. Um, yeah, great deal. Uh, we saw something similar in 2007. It doesn't exclude the possibility that you miss out on a, on a, on a very late cycle rally again. But if you look at it from a statistical perspective with uh, risk premiums relative to some, some sort of normal distribution, then, I mean, you basically don't want to buy anything right now. <laughs> <laughs> that 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 is that is the simple conclusion from such a study. Uh, it's very hard to find anything with a good risk reward. No position is also a position, as somebody used to tell me once. Um, you don't need to have a trade on at any point in time. And look, what happens if you get a string of weaker data now? Let's assume, right? Let's assume the seasonality effect is out as you studied it, and you get a string of relatively weak data. There is a chance that the market rallies again, right? It, it can because, oh, it's again this inflationary soft landing. We're far away from a recession still. We just get some weaker data. Inflation is coming down, blah, blah, blah. So you get probably another of these rallies, right? So if you're a tactical trader, that's, you know, you can try and, and play a bit the range. 38, 42 in, in S&P, 3,800, 4,200, roughly that kind of range. If you're a medium-term investor, it's a bit more complicated as a picture, as you say. The risk-reward doesn't look particularly appealing, I would say, uh, for many uh, risk assets. But we are one soft inflation report from a renewed, whoa, this is a Goldilocks scenario. One yeah, soft inflation report. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That's what I mean. You just need, say you need one report where 
non-farm payroll sprint at 120, 130K, 150K, something along these lines, you know, like a decent dish number, soft dish number. And then one inflation report that confirms core services trending a little bit lower. Whoa, the market is going to rally again, 100%. No discussion. And I think, I think that is likely for the next two months, but that's still my, I mean, very tactical view. That, that would be my, my base case still. A couple of weak-ish inflation reports, due, also due to the way that we measure it versus last year's invasion effects and all that. Where, where do they lead? And the real question we need to answer as a long-term, medium-term investor is, where are you heading to? Finally, in six to nine months, where do you land? That's the landing discussion. Where do you land? Like, do you land to a point where it's, you know, the economy grows at half a percent, one percent, no recession. Inflation is back to two and a half to three percent. Great. The Fed can remove this incredible amount of tightening from markets. So from five and a half percent Fed funds, they can move to three. You know, that's, if that is your scenario, then yes, go long risk assets. Because, you know, there is no reason to, to fear. I mean, these discounting rates will come down. So your comparison between earnings yield and discounting rates will be looking much more friendly because risk-free rates are now 3% and not 55 anymore. Earnings will not drop 20% if the economy handles this. And if inflation magically uh, slows down, if that is your base case, then you should go and buy risk assets 100%. I'm just saying history does not suggest that this is a very likely base case to have or to imagine once you have had such a tightening from a fiscal and a monetary perspective. It's very hard to engineer a soft landing, especially if you were flying so much high in the sky with nominal GDP growth at 10% year on year in 2021, which forced the Fed to hike so aggressively. Landing soft from a very high altitude, historically speaking, really complicated. Elf, final thing. Um, I have had plenty of discussions around how to measure the true equity risk premium with clients of mine, uh, with other research houses. And one argument I hear a lot right now is that you need to measure the equity earnings yield relative to the tips yield. Um, and if you do that, then equity risk premiums look absolutely okay from a historical perspective. Say a 10-year tips yield is, is currently at 1.3 or thereabout. Um, so that would be, a, of course, a different um, measure. And I, I wouldn't fully rule out that it makes sense to look at it from such a perspective. Um, That's what I there, do. Yeah. So, I, I, I mean... Um, that is, of course, a completely different measure than looking at, like, the spot money market yield of five and a half. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. But, but that makes sense to me. I mean, you're buying a stream of cash flows that is not mm. a six-month stream of cash flows. Yes. Hopefully, these companies will be around for 10 or 20 years, right? So you, look, you need to compare them against long-dated yields to start with. So nominal or real? That's the question, right? Mm. And um, so first of all, if you compare earnings yield against long-term yields, nominal or real, the measure looks already much better. I mean, let's, let's set the record straight. It looks slightly more expensive than a 15-year average. So it's not damn expensive. It's a bit expensive on a 15-year average. Same if you do it against real yields. Um, my question would remain the same, the same, Andreas. Unless you expect a disinflationary soft lending to happen, 
why would you want to buy in this intersection of the macro cycle equities at a risk premium more expensive than a 15-year average? And in this 15-year average, you have had a great financial crisis, but you have had also periods of QE, relentless global QE. So why would you now choose to buy equities at the risk premium more expensive than a 15-year average unless you expect this inflationary soft landing? If you expect this inflationary soft landing, go ahead because risk premium will compress further. In that case, there is no reason to have any, any, any pickup in risk premium. I just say that is the body of the distribution, the disinflationary soft landing according to markets. I think the tails, both of them, the recessionary tails and the higher for longer tails are much fatter than what the market is pricing in. So when these non-linear episodes happen, risk premium go, goes up, not down. And yeah. because it's already a bit expensive, historically speaking, I'm not a great fan of, as a long-term investor, just piling up equities here, to be honest. It's at least not a no-brainer no to do it. No. <laughs> For sure not. Um, so maybe those should be our final potentially very expensive words. Uh, I, remain, I remain tactically upbeat. But I'm I'm being tested on that view these weeks, um, not least with the higher for longer repricing. Andreas, where can people find more of your work? They can go to stenoresearch.com um, to find more. And um, we will elaborate on a running basis on these risk premiums and how to view them. Um, so if not for the banter, if not for the ideas, then you at least uh, find very interesting data there. Same for me, the macrocompass.com. This is just the appetizer of what I end up doing for clients there with timely reports, week in and week out. Go have a look. And we'll talk to you guys next week, right, Andreas? Yes, next Sunday. Enjoy, guys. Enjoy.